<laughs> Good morning, everybody. My name is Jim. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> what a great group. Let the tape show there's only 35 people left in the room. <laughs> of course, there were 1,500 here last night to hear the famous Keith Drum talk. But um, what Roy just, I want to thank Roy and Norma for carrying me around this weekend, meeting me at the airport and driving me hither and yon and making sure they dropped me off at the front door because I have a little heart and lung problem and I can't walk very far. So they've made, they've taken care of me and driven me around, took me to get snacks last night before we went back to the room and, uh, and I've enjoyed your, your assistance and I thank you very much for making me feel at home. Keith and Sue are old, old, old friends of mine. Very old friends of mine. We, I'm from California originally and we got sober together out there and I'm sober a little longer than Keith. 29 years, two weeks ago, but uh, uh, we've kind of uh, we kind of grew up together. We were involved in the Southern California Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous together. I was chairman one year, and Keith was my co-chairman. And out there, the co-chairman becomes the chairman for the following year, and they have rotating leadership. Every year, they elect a new co-chairman in the meeting on Friday night, and that person. Serves as co-chairman for a year and becomes the chairman the next year and they elect a new co-chairman. It's kind of a neat deal. Keith didn't like me at the time. <laughs> he and I had disagreed on some moot point and uh, he was my co-chairman but he was incommunicado. But then we got over it and we've been good friends ever since. I love the man dearly. He and I and Sue spoke in Waco, Texas about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. I'm sorry, it wasn't Waco, it was Norman, Oklahoma. Are they here this morning? Keith and Sue? I don't see any place. They're probably not. They're probably sleeping in. Uh, I got to the conference and there was nobody to meet me at the airport. Took a cab to the hotel. Walked into the hotel and the place is just chaotic. I finally found some people. They didn't have any record of me. They didn't know I was the speaker. They didn't know who the speakers were. There was just, it was just a chaotic mess. It seems that the, like a month before the conference, the hotel had declared bankruptcy and been locked up. And it had reopened like three days before the conference. But like a week before the conference, the committee who works their butts off putting these kind of things together we're having a committee meeting as they have to do to make sure this thing happens and they got into some sort of a fracas and half of the quitty, half of the committee quit <laughs> including the general chairman and walked out and said screw you do it any way you want we're out of here and they took off so you never know what you're going to get I uh I'm always honored to be invited. I always see old friends and make new friends. But I have ridden on more rickety treetop airlines than I care to ride on, I'll tell you. <laughs> Especially when they have to de-ice it two or three times before we take off. I, uh, I'm glad to be here. I, like my friend Keith, am a, uh, 
I'm an alcoholic. I'm tell you a little bit about me. Because I drank booze. I'm an alcoholic by consumption. My parents, my brothers, my teachers, nobody made me an alcoholic. I was just an alcoholic because I drank. And it did something different in me. I had my first drink when I was like 16 year old. Like most of you did, perhaps. My parents went somewhere for the weekend and uh, there was a house party happened. And uh, my big brothers brought in the booze and the kids and, and I got drunk at that house party. Probably like many of you did the first time, you know. I had had a few sips of mom's beer along the way, but I'd never been drunk. And I got drunk. I started drinking beer and the more I drank, the better looking I got. If you can believe that. I started drinking, I started gaining weight because I was 118 pounds, six foot tall when I was 16 years old. And I started drinking beer and I started gaining weight. And I got up to about 175, 180 pounds. I started hanging out with the football players, you know, talking trash. I had a few more drinks and I asked some girl to dance. I was terrified of girls, absolutely terrified of girls. I walked over and asked this girl to dance. She said, sure. The fact that I did not know how to dance did not impede me a bit. <clears throat> she stood up and I knew how to dance. And I danced with that girl several times. I set her down. I went out in the kitchen, hung out with the football players a little bit, told some stories, smoked my first cigarette. I went back in the living room started giving dancing lessons. You know? And the more I drank, the better it got. And... Uh, I knew what had caused that. It was sitting around that room with them bottles and cans and glasses. And uh, if a little bit had done that much for me, I knew more would make it better. And I drank with reckless abandon that night. And if you're a 16-year-old stupid kid and you're skinny and you're on your first drunk, what happens is you get sick. And I was drinking anything that was unattended. You ever do that? Somebody sets it down, turns their back on it, you pick it up drink it? They go to the bathroom, come back, their glass is empty. They go to dance, come back, it's gone. Sometimes there's cigarette butts in them. They don't matter, you know. If you're a real alcoholic, keep your teeth together, no problem. Yeah. <clears throat> I was talking to this girl and I started puking. On her, on the floor, on the wall. Just projectile puking, just... I went from wonderful to hideously sick. And they got me out in the backyard and I'm out there puking and rolling in it. And my big brother's got the garden hose on me, you know, trying to clean me up and sober me up. And I went from hip slick and cool to embarrassed and humiliated and degraded. And I just felt like I wanted the world to swallow me up. And all the kids are out there in a circle watching me and laughing at me and making fun of me. And, and I felt awful. The next day I was sicker than a dog. I mean, I was just sicker than a dog. I heaved all night, and the next day I had to dry heaves, and I had a headache, and I just, I was just going to die. And I know, I know that I swore off forever, with or without a solemn oath, the next day. I, I must have said or thought, Jesus Christ, I'll never do that again, you know. Because I was bad sick. But somehow in the back of my brain, that hour or hour and a half when I was wonderful, 
was indelibly recorded. That hour when I was not afraid of you or anything else. That hour when I could dance. That hour when I could talk to the football players. That hour when I could tell jokes and you laughed and if you didn't it's because you didn't get the joke. You know, That hour when I was in control was indelibly recorded back there and it's still there today. That there's something you can drink to make everything go away. And I didn't set out to do all the things that I was to do over the next 10, 12 years. I didn't set out to embarrass and humiliate myself and my family. I didn't set out to become unmanly and a failure and a pervert and a twisted sick excuse for a man. I didn't set out to be an immoral leper on society. I didn't set out to get married and have a wife and two kids and to beat them up all of, you know, physically, emotionally, sexually, the whole thing. I didn't set out to embarrass my family and my brothers and my employers and let everybody down and hurt everybody that came close to me. But that's what I did over the next 10 or 12 years while I tried to find that hour when the world was fun. That's all I wanted. I never have wanted to hurt nobody. I never have intentionally inflicted pain on another human being or animal. I just... I want to have fun and laugh and love and be loved and be successful and be something in society, but I never was. Because something, I don't know, something happened along the way. I was being attacked. <laughs> when, you, when the message came out about how to grow up and how to be a parent and how to be a husband and how to be an employee, you got it and I didn't. For some reason or other, I was out behind the barn when the instructions came out. And I never could quite figure out what I was supposed to do in a given situation. When the boss was yelling at me or my wife was wanting something or those kids were squalling and raising hell or when the cops were behind the car, I just didn't know why. I didn't know why. Why is everybody upset? So I could slide off into some upholstered sewer and I could have a few drinks and everything was okay. And I started seeking validation outside of my marriage as we do. And I found understanding women who understood. I found old friends in them bars. That we would start major corporations together sitting at the bar, you know. And uh, life was good. By the end of my drinking in 1969... I had failed at just about everything. I was 28 years old. I was a failure, as Keith said last night, as a husband, as a father, as an employee, as everything. You know, as a man, I had just erased it. I was just nothing. I was just a hollow shell of a man. I was a total failure at life. I was a failure in business. I was, a, you know, I'd, I wanted, you know, to be like a bank vice president, you know. So I was a bank employee early in my life and from a teller to a head teller to an assistant cashier to a cashier to up to assistant vice president and then they caught me and they fired me <laughs> man I wanted to be the youngest bank president in the state of California and I felt humiliated what I'd done and they fired me and threw me out of the banking industry and, and I deserved it you know and it really wasn't for taking their money it was for abusing their employees and humiliating the corporation in my drunkenness around town that they had to throw me away. 
and I'm in San Francisco and I'm trying to be a salesman selling things to banks and I hate my job and I hate San Francisco and I hate my wife and I hate them neurotic kids and I don't want to go home and I don't want to go to work and I don't want to I don't even want to live anymore and so I sit in them upholstered sewers in San Francisco and topless joints over in the North Beach area and I try to be somebody and I'm I'm spending expense money that I've lied to and gotten phony expenses on my expense account hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars that I've imagined and made up and charged to the company and they reimbursed me for things I'd never done and I'm not sitting in bars over there in the North Beach and lie to people about who I really was and just trying to trying to be something trying to be comfortable trying to amount to something in life and I got to a place where the booze wouldn't do it where drinking just wouldn't do it anymore I was no longer dancing with the girls I wasn't playing the jukebox I wasn't rolling the bar dice I wasn't telling jokes to the bartender I wasn't going home with your wife I wasn't I was just sitting at the bar staring in that back bar mirror wondering what the hell happened how did I get to be like this? Why don't I get off of this bar stool and go make some calls? I've been lying to the boss for a week now. I haven't made a sales call anyplace, you know? I gotta go see them people and get their orders and take some business in or they're gonna fire me. And I just said, well, I'm gonna have one more and then I'm gonna go over to Sausalito and see that guy I'm supposed to be over there last week, but I told him I was sick and I'll get over there. I'm gonna have another beer and then I'm gonna get over there to Sausalito and I'm gonna see this guy. And then it was like five o'clock. And I was, damn, well, he's gone home now, you know. I better get home. I better, well, the traffic's kind of heavy right now going across the bridge, so I'm going to have a couple more beers and I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go home and have roast beef and see how the family's doing. So I have a couple more drinks and it's 9 o'clock. God, I better go call the house. Give me one more. I'm going to call home, tell my wife I've gotten tied up here and, uh, you know, i got this business deal going and, uh, I'll be home, you know, by 10 or 10.30. So I'll just have one more, and then I'll run and call her and tell her that. And damn, it's midnight. And damn, I didn't call her. I better go call her because she'll be worried now. No, she'll be pissed off. So, you know, ain't no sense of calling her now, man, because I know what I'm going to get. So I'm just going to have one more, and then it's... It's 2.30 and the bars are closed and I'm with some other woman that I don't even know and I'm guilty and I'm ashamed and I've spent my paycheck plus some and, and I've committed adultery and I hate myself and i got to go home because i got to change clothes for tomorrow. And then i got to lie to her about where I've been all night and invent them alibis and <sighs> fight with her and him. Like Keith said, them two kids are down at the end of the hall, you know, not knowing which way to turn. It was a hideous existence. And I got arrested one night for drunk driving. And, you know, I wish that I was... I see, watch this cops show, you know. I love the pursuits, you know. They're pursuing some drunk guy, usually with drugs, and they chase him. He just eludes the cops all over town. There's like 87 police cars behind this guy. And he's got his turn signal on, navigating his turns. You know he's a drunk and he's signaling his turns while he's out running the cops. <laughs> you know what they arrested me for? Driving alongside the interstate. 
at 10 miles an hour. Uh, they were going too fast out there. <laughs> I'm driving along with two wheels in the grass alongside the interstate, you know. And I'm a half mile from my my turn off, my, my house. And they stopped me for driving too slow on the interstate. And I got out of my car and fell down and dropped the contents of my wallet. And this trooper and I picked everything up. He said I was very polite in his report. He says, when I could understand what he was saying, he was very polite. And I came to in a jail cell in San Rafael. And I had one of those little moments of clarity that drunks have. Because when I came to in that jail cell, I couldn't recall being arrested. All I just blinked and I'm looking out through them bars and I don't know what I'm doing, why I'm there, and what I've done. And, And this scared me. And I got out of jail and I went home and I lied to her about where I'd been all night and I changed clothes and I got in the car and I drove into San Francisco and I didn't go to the office. I knew I was done at the office. I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous in the phone book and I went to 166 Gary Street. Why I looked up AA, I don't know. I didn't have nothing to do with AA. I didn't know anybody in AA. I'd never really heard anything about AA except them jokes they tell in the bar, you know, about AA. I must have heard something somewhere because I looked up AA in the phone book and I went to AA. I walked into Central Office in San Francisco and I met a guy named Paul Gardner. Said, Paul's dead now. This is 31 years ago. And he was an old guy. He was I thought he was a president of AA. <laughs> he had a suit on. He was at mine at the big desk and the girls introduced me to him and and uh, Paul sat in that office for a long time and talked to me. I was 28 year old. I wanted to know if I was an alcoholic or not, because I didn't know. I didn't know that non-alcoholics don't go to AA to ask if they're alcoholics. Normal drinkers don't do that. It never comes up in a normal drinker's mind. Maybe I ought to go see if I'm an alcoholic, you know? So I asked Paul if I was an alcoholic. He laughed and told me how much he drank. I let him finish the little story and I asked him again, if I could be an alcoholic, I'm only 28 years old. He laughed and told me some more drinking history of his own. Now, if this old fart has a hearing problem, and I asked him again, point blank, Paul, I'm 28 years old. I don't drink that much. I don't drink every day. Could I be an alcoholic if I just drink beer? He laughed and started telling me how much beer he used to drink, you know? I said, well, Paul, let me ask you one more thing here. i got to go to work, but I want to know, if if you, like, you, you, like, went out drinking, you know, and you didn't get, like, drunk, you didn't pass out, but you can't exactly remember where you were or what you did, you know. If you, like, have, like, amnesia, is that caused by drinking or is that something else? He laughed. He said he had gotten drunk in the Dakotas and came to in San Diego two weeks later, you know. He thought it was the funniest thing he had ever done. And I thought, man, this is one sick man, you know. He just wouldn't pronounce me alcoholic or non-alcoholic. But he took me over at the window and we looked down on Geary Street. And he told me a story looking down on Gary Street. 
he picked out a pedestrian and he said, see that guy down there in the red coat? I said, yeah. He says, what would you think of that guy in the red coat if he crossed the street right there in the middle of the block? I said, what? He said, you know, if he like jaywalked across the street, what would you think of him? I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. We all jaywalk. I mean, what's that big deal? He says, oh, you wouldn't think nothing about it. He says, what if when he got to this side of the street, he turned around and went back in the middle of the block. And I said, maybe he forgot something. He says, yeah, but when he gets to the other side, he doesn't go any blades. He wheels around and runs back across the street without even looking. And he almost gets hit by a car. What would you think of him now? I said, well, I don't know, he's strange, but I don't know. He said, well, what would you think if he left and he came back and the next day he's standing down there on this very same street and he's running back and forth across the street without looking till suddenly a car clips him and knocks him down and he scrapes himself and he tears his suit and he gets up and he brushes himself off and he runs away. But two days later he's back down here on this very block of this same street dodging in and out of the traffic for no apparent reason other than just the pure excitement of it. And he does it until he's hit by a car and he breaks his leg and he goes to the hospital. And he's in a cast. And he doesn't even go home. He comes back down to this street, this block, on crutches with a cast on his leg, and he's jaywalking on crutches. What would you think of him then? I said, well, obviously, he's, you know, he doesn't have a, all of his marbles. He says, but he does it until a truck hits him, and he goes to the hospital, and he's in traction for six months. And he goes home, and the very first time he is well enough to leave the house, he comes back down to this street and he jaywalks until he's hit again. Then what would you think of our friend? I said, well, this son of a bitch is crazy. He said, now put booze in place of the jaywalking and where does that leave you? I had an instant dislike for Paul. Because <laughs> he had tricked me. He had sucked me in on that one, I'll tell you. But I also thought, what a wise man. What a clever way to, you know, trick me. So he gave me some literature and I went off to find A&A. And I found Alcoholics Anonymous up in San Rafael at the, in the hospital cafeteria parking lot, the cafeteria, the next night. And I went to find my first AA meeting. And I got there late, like newcomers are supposed to do, and I came in the wrong door, like newcomers are supposed to do. You all came in those doors, I came in these doors over here. And the meeting was already in progress, of course. And the doors locked. And I'm rattling the door, you know. Because I've told her I'm going to AA. I've got to get to AA. Some newcomer or some person gets up, comes over and lets me in. And the meeting's in progress. Everybody's looking at me. Dummy newcomer coming in, you know. And they insist. I want to go stand in the back. And they insist that I have a seat. And the only seat now is right out in front of the podium down here. they got tables running down, about 150 people there. And they insist I got to sit down. Well... I already am causing way too much attention. I want to leave. And they say, oh, no, you sit down. It'll be all right. So finally, I say, okay, whatever. I go, I sit down. And people are shaking my hand right around me. And somebody gives me a cup of coffee. And I turn around and look up front. And there's a table like this. And they have been reading and all the stuff. What did we do at AA meetings? Whatever they did there. And by the time I got settled in, they're introducing the speaker. And they say, now we're so happy. We get to hear our speaker. Please welcome Father Art. And a Catholic priest stood up, dressed in black with a little white dicky in the front. I thought I had been tricked. 
I'm in the wrong room, obviously. I'm in church. And I am ready to leave because I ain't staying for church. I've been to church and church don't work. Church didn't work for me. And I am not staying to listen to a Catholic priest. I'm not even Catholic, you know. But before I could figure out how to get out of the room that I had just gotten into, this 300-pound priest gets to the microphone. And he says, Hi, I'm Father Art. I'm an alcoholic. And everybody said, Hey, Art. I said, No, shit. I didn't mean to. It just slipped out. You know, it was like... It delighted the people sitting around me, I'll tell you. I couldn't believe this priest could be an alcoholic. I wanted to hear this deal, so I sat there and I was just riveted on this guy. You know what he did? He talked about immoral, humiliating, unmanly, illegal, hideous things he had done as a priest. Terrible things. And you thought it was funny, and you're all laughing, and he's laughing, and he keeps getting worse and sicker and worse and sicker, and the sicker he gets, the funnier you think it is, and you're all laughing, and I'm just... I'm thinking if the church finds out about this guy, he's out of work, you know? Uh, Priests are supposed to be like Bing Crosby, you know? And uh, he tells his tale, and he got all sad and goopy, and people around me get teared up, and then he got all warm and fuzzy again, and he was through. And everybody stood up and clapped, and the meeting was over, and about half the room came up to thank Father Art for his wonderful talk, and the other half was after me. In 1969, there weren't a lot of treatment centers cranking out newcomers. Evidently, they hadn't had one in a while. Because I looked up and all I could see was teeth and eyeballs and hands. People are shaking my hand and smiling and stuffing literature and phone numbers and crap in my pockets. And I'm trying to figure out, what do they want? You know? A couple of of guys saved me. They came by and got me and... We went past the literature table on the way out and they grabbed a big book. We went to all night coffee shop. Corner booth. You know the round one? Where they can get on both sides of you? <laughs> you can't get out. We sat in the coffee shop all night and they told me immoral, perverted, sick, dishonest, hideous things they had done, which included farm animals, for Christ's sakes. I couldn't imagine these two guys sitting there and they got into a thing that only alcoholics do this. Only, only, only alcoholics do this. They got into a who's the worst contest. (laughs) Now, Marines will brag about who's the toughest and who's the baddest. I'm not talking about that. They were talking about who's the sickest. No matter what Glenn had done, Dale had done it twice. You know? And if Glenn hadn't done what Dale done, then he did it, you know, when he was younger. You know, or with people watching or something. It was all. <laughs> I made up things I hadn't done. And I cannot believe I did that, but I wanted them to like me. That's another thing that's strange about our club. We turn to lower companions for approval. It's just a sick thing. <laughs> Only in Alcoholics Anonymous is the sicker you are, the more you get asked to talk. You know? <clears throat> But February the 16th of 1969, I fell in love with the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was delighted to find out that we're going to another meeting tomorrow night and the next night and the next night. 
because they would come by and they would get me and we would hurdle off to a meeting in some other town nearby or down into San Francisco or wherever up there in Marin County around northern San Francisco and my wife jumped up and went with us a couple of times joined Al-Anon and things got good at home things got good in the big bed them kids were wrestle with me on the living room floor again and I'm running off to a meeting every night come home from the meeting we're up till midnight talking about what happened at the meeting and making love and stuff and, and it's just good I mean life is good I'm 28 years old I'm in A&A I'm back on track I'm working for the boss I'm loving my wife I am good and I got drunk. I just come out of a bar in San Francisco at two o'clock in the morning, knee walking drunk that I can't even remember walking in that bar. And I called my wife and I said, I'm drunk. I don't know why I'm drunk, but once you know I'm drunk, I'm gonna sit in this coffee shop here until I'm sober enough to drive home. And we'll talk about it tomorrow. And I got home about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning and I called Glenn. Glenn had Six months. Dale had like three years. He was like a god. He scared me to death. But the other guy had like three or six months or something. I, I felt comfortable with him. I called him. He came over to my house. And I demanded an explanation. I said, how did I get drunk? He said, you drank whiskey. I said, Why? He said, you alcoholic? I said, but Glenn, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been going to meetings for weeks now. I love everything about it. I love the people. I love the result of it. I love what's going on in my house. I love my wife. I love everything. Why would I jeopardize all of that for one night of drinking? I can't even remember. Why would I throw all of that away? Because I could see the hope and the love and the, the life that was available to me. I had a, a sober look at what could be. And I turned it in for a night of drinking. I said, why would I do that? He picked up my big book. Some meetings have, oh, there's one. He picked up my big book. It was laying on the kitchen, on the coffee table where newcomers always put their big book, you know. Looks like they've been reading it that way. <coughs> he picked it up and he said, Jimmy, he said, uh, yeah, I have to read this book. And in this book, you will find the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is, the program is not in the meetings. It's not in the coffee shop. It's not on the phone. It's not even right now with you and me talking. He said, the program of recovery of Alcoholics Anonymous is in this book if you seek it, if you identify, if you find it, you will then have, you will have a program of recovery. I can't do it for you, and I wouldn't if I could. I wouldn't deny you the journey. Now, in a way, I knew what he was talking about. Because I had heard you read them steps and traditions and stuff. I had heard speakers quote parts of the big book. I had looked at the big book. I had perused it, you know. I mean, you can't not if you're a stupid newcomer. You want to see where they're getting all these quotes so you can be a speaker someday and you can quote the big book, you know. And I had looked around through it, and I decided I didn't need that, that one about agnostics. And I didn't need that one about Bill's story. I wasn't his age, and it was, so the wives didn't apply to me, and I'd, you know, I'd looked it over. But if you're new, or you're not so new and you're not having any fun, let me hasten to assure you. We know that you're terrified of the big book. It's too big. There's over 500 pages here. 
If you did read it, you can't remember it all. <clears throat> you know, it's not even a novel, and there's no pictures. You know, there's no main character running through it that gets you know like a hero, a hero or heroine. It's just I never started because I knew I'd never finish it. But I tried to do it by osmosis. I tried to do it from the half measures section. I tried to do AA from the back row. I tried to do the AA by pretend. I tried to do AA by meetings, meetings, meetings. Uh, and what happened for me, like my friend Keith, I stayed very sick in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was to drink and go to AA for the next two years. And I was the newcomer. Who's the slipping newcomer in this room today, huh? Goes in and out of AA, you know, until they're sick and tired of your ass. You know that? That feeling? You walk in the room and they look and see it's you. And they go on talking to their newcomer, you know. They're not glad to see you anymore because you have been slipping forever. And you know what they're telling the newcomer. Stay away from that son bitch. <laughs> He's bad news. He'll seduce you or borrow money from you or he'll lie to you, you know. Stay away from him. And you get sick and tired of Alcoholics Anonymous. After two years of this nonsense, I hated AA worse than I hated anything. Especially people in AA that came in after I did and got it. They got well. They got happy. They got in love with their wives. They got good at their jobs. They got a sponsor. They got the literature. They're making the coffee. Bunch of goddamn brown nosed sissies. You just hate them people like that, you know? <clears throat> Excuse me, I forgot it's Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> I just want to whoop their butts, you know? Up there in the front, brown nosing with the speaker and stuff, you know, kissing up and stuff. I'm in the back row hating them, you know? Time in the meeting, time in the speaker, winking at the girls, counting the ceiling tiles, you know? Hoping the meeting's over, time to shoot a couple games of pool before I have to go home. And, and I just got crazy. And I got three or four months of osmosis sobriety put together. And that kind of sobriety you get just by not drinking no matter what. You ever done that? You just double up your fists and you grit your teeth and you just don't drink. I did that for a couple, three months. I don't know how long. Till one day I exploded, man. I had to drink or die. Now, I could have surrendered, but I didn't know that I hadn't. That day... In early January 1971, I went from my now prestigious job at Wards of selling television sets. I went across the street to the bowling alley to have lunch. And I walked right through the coffee shop into the bar. I'd never been in that bar before. Climbed up on a bar stool and I ordered a martini. Bartender set that martini up there and I thought about you. I thought about the clubhouse. I thought about the AA members, the old timers, the newcomers and all the stuff and nonsense I'd heard at meetings. And I didn't disbelieve you I didn't really even hate you that day I just knew I couldn't get it for whatever reason I knew AA I was I was incapable of doing AA and I drank the martini well once you've had a martini you slip you know might as well have another one so I had another one once you've had two martinis you must have a third once you've had three martinis, they all taste like more. I came off of that drunk in Hawaii, January the 18th of 1971, and I haven't had a drink from that day to this.
But I did not know I was in Hawaii. I didn't know where I was. I came to a motel room with empties and soiled clothes and blood and a crazy man. Jackknifing around that room. I didn't go to the lobby and buy a paper, as the speaker said the other night, but I called the front desk and I found stuff around the room, airplane tickets and other crap that gave me an idea. And then when you go, you look out the Venetian blinds, you know. Oh, shit, palm trees, you know. This, this is not good here, you know. I wish I knew what happened in that little room January the 18th of 1971. If I did, I would tell it to you so you don't have to slip anymore. Or you or whoever is going to get drunk next in this room. Could be you, could be me, I don't know. If I knew what had happened in that room, I would share it. I'd probably sell it, you know, because I'm self-centered. But I would certainly get the word out. Oh, this is what you got to do if you want to be served over the next 29 years. Do this. But for a long time, I didn't know what I did in that room. Maybe I don't today. I got an idea. It had something to do with surrender at a level that I had never surrendered before. AA is all about surrender, sin, sobriety, and in drunkenness. Something happened for me in that little room. I came back to the same alcoholics, the same old-timers, the same newcomers, the same clubhouse, and I stayed sober. I know that I have stayed so why I have stayed sober from that day to this. I did it all different. What I don't know is why I did it different. Why did I decide it's now okay to have a sponsor? I hated sponsors. I thought the whole idea, the concept of sponsorship is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. Why would I, an ex-bank vice president, ask an unemployed car salesman to help me? Why would a church lady get a hooker for a sponsor? You know, why... Why would you do that? This person doesn't even get a high school diploma and you're asking them not just for a little, you know, what color socks to wear with brown shoes. You're asking them career advice for Christ's sakes. Marital advice. You're literally giving them your life. And they're running it. Based on what? But when I came back from Hawaii, I asked this nasty man to be my sponsor. Old Bill. He was a mean bitch. Why I asked him, I don't know, fear. He was ten years sober, he seemed happy. I was scared to death of him. And I went and turned myself into Bill. Bill started making me do things that weren't in the big book. Because I went home and I looked in the big book for him, you know? Where the hell does it say you got to go to a meeting every day? It doesn't say that in here. Where does it say i got to call you every day? Where does it say I have to dress a certain way or go a certain place or do a certain thing? That's not in there. But I did it anyway. And I learned the big book. And I outgrew Bill, because Bill went to one meeting a week. And sometimes, if he was the speaker, he'd go on Friday night to the interview. And I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got into service work, and I, I fell in love with this deal, the whole thing, and the steps, and the traditions, and I kept wanting to talk to Bill about the steps, and he had put me on. Well, you just take those whenever you're ready, da 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 I can't really display them to you. Come to find out, Bill had never taken the steps. Okay, But I found a guy who had, and Joe became my sponsor, and he took me through the 12 and 12 and the steps of recovery, and he explained to me how one leads to the next, and you can't do, you know, five before you, before you do two, and, and so on. He showed me how one leads you right into the next one, and it's, it's a natural progression. It's how it has to work in order for it to work. Now, I don't come up with 
to me after the meeting and debate this issue. If you want to do them backwards, do them backwards. I don't care if you take every other one and then you go back and do the odd ones. I don't care how you do it, but do it. I'm not here to debate. This is my opinion. This is what happened for me. And I took the steps. And as a result of taking the steps, I found a new freedom and a new happiness. I didn't get perfect. Don't misunderstand me, new person or old person not having any fun. I am not an authority on alcoholism. I am not a counselor. I am not, I've never been to college. I am not even really bright. You know? I just know what happened to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't do it flawlessly. I was still to destroy two marriages, commit some ugly mistakes, some self-centered behavior that just, I had that interstate flight to avoid ugly looks from people. You know, just terrible things I, I committed in sobriety. At one point, I, I didn't speak any place for over five years, and I didn't deserve to speak. You know? Uh, I was a member of the Big Pacific Group in, in Los Angeles, and Clancy I was my sponsor, and I was sponsoring 15 guys, and I was speaking all over the country. One month, and the next month, Clancy was no longer my sponsor, and nobody in the group would shake my hand, and in shame, I, I left town. Uh, without my wife, with, in fact, I, I wound up in Ocala, Florida, 20 years and three days sober, and this is what I had. I had $12 and some loose change, a quarter of a tank of gas in my truck, everything I owned laying in the bed in garbage bags. I didn't have a friend, a job, or anything within 1,500 miles. I was sitting in a closed gas station in the middle of the night, thinking, what the hell have I done? How'd this happen, you know? Took me a couple of years to find out how I did that, you know? How did I go from when I was 15 years sober, I got the world by the tail. I'm making 100 grand a year. I got all the stuff. When I'm 20 years sober, I'm this close to drinking and killing myself. You know how you do that? I'll tell you how you do, how I did that. I unworked the steps backwards. I quit carrying the message. I started carrying my ego around. I quit trying to communicate with God because I had a thousand dollars of my money clip just for flash and you don't need God when you carry around a thousand dollars just in case you happen to need a few bucks. And I quit admitting my mistakes. I started defending my mistakes. And I just unworked the steps. And I had to have a girlfriend again because I am now less than. And I started cheating on my wife again. Then wife. Uh... And I just undid that. just unraveled like a sweater when you pull the string out. You know, it gets to be less and less sweater, man. Pretty soon it's revealing things, you know. And that's the way I got. And I'm ashamed that that happened to me and I did all them things. But I paid the price for it. I served my time. And I made amends to all them people that I could find. the ex-wives and all that stuff. And I straightened the record out as best I can. And a guy named Clint Hodges saved my life. and helped me get back in the steps. I'm back right with God. So now that I'm 29 years sober, I can stand with dignity. Not necessarily in front of you, but I can stand in my kitchen with dignity. That I'm, it's alright for me to be where I'm at doing what I'm doing. Uh, and the steps only got me back there. The steps got me there originally. I undid the steps and I got really sick. Then I did the steps again and I'm back where I'm supposed to be. And I believe this beyond all else. I'll tell you a couple stories and we'll get out of here. I believe, and I am, this is my belief, 
that every piece of literature that has ever been printed by GSO, and maybe by Hazelin, I don't know. I don't have that issue going either. But I believe every piece of literature ever printed by GSO is designed to get me to take the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, it may say to the gay and lesbian alcoholic, it may say to the man in prison, it may be say, uh, so you think your case is different, but it all leads back to taking the steps. And I believe this. The steps are designed for only one thing. To help me find a God of my understanding which can solve my problem. I believe that. Now, if I were in the grocery store, I'm retired now, so I do the grocery shopping. And uh, as I go down the aisle, if I come across, go down that baking aisle where all the flour and sugar and the cake mixes and stuff are, and I see a Betty Crocker cake mix, and it's got a big slice of chocolate cake on the front of the box, and I stop and look at that, my mind says, whoa, damn, that looks good. I like chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. I am kind of obsessed over things like this. I'm addicted to it. So I gotta make a decision. Do I like it? A dollar and seventy-nine cents worth. Hey, I got the buck seventy-nine. So I take the cake mix and I put it in my basket. And just for drill, I pick up the frosting and the little round thing. And I go home. I pay for it with some other stuff and I take it home. I get home and I got a Betty Crocker box cake mix. I still don't have cake. I have made a decision that I want cake. But I haven't taken the steps to get the cake. Except for a very first one. You know? I admitted I wanted cake. And I took a step to get the cake. But I can't eat the box. I can't even dump out that sack that's in there and eat that stuff that's in that sack. What do I have to do? To get cake, I really want this cake that's on the front of the box. What do I have to do? I turn it over, I look at the back. What's the first thing it says on the back of the box? Huh? I can't hear you. What does it say on the back of the box? <laughs> it doesn't say open the box. It says, you will need the following. What do we tell newcomers? You're going to need a little honesty, open-mindedness, willingness. On the back of that box, it says you're going to need two eggs, a quarter cup of oil, and some water. Anybody debate that? Has anybody called Betty Crocker and said, why two eggs and not six? <laughs> anybody call up their mother-in-law and say, can you believe what they're asking me to do here? You know? <laughs> then it says, set the oven on 350 degrees. Did you ever say, I think that's asking a bit much? <laughs> you know? I'm a banker, and I think 200 will be plenty. <laughs> or maybe you're in a hurry for cake. Put that bitch on 500, you know? <laughs> yeah, give me some cake, you know? So you take the eggs and the oil and the water, and you dump out the sack in the bowl, and you start mixing it up. Did you even consider remotely having the contents of that bag analyzed? Have you ever read the contents over on the side panels? Do you know what riboflavin is? 
Do you care? <laughs> but when they come into AA and we say, you got to take an inventory. Say, why? you got to find a God. No, I don't. you got to turn your life and will over to something. Well, I might someday. you got to go to me every night. No, I don't. You know? you got to surrender. you got to do this. you got to do that. We argue and fight and stop and say, oh, but really, I don't want to do it, but you don't understand. I'm different. I just... Uh. But if you want what's on the front of the cake box, you automatically do what's on the back of the cake box without questioning it. Nobody gets in the oven to see what happens, you know? <laughs> Nobody analyzes the eggs or the contents of the sack or any of that crap. We automatically assume if we put it in a bowl, we stir it up, we put it in the oven for the predetermined time, it comes out of the oven, it's cake. I don't think any of us get misty-eyed, you know? <laughs> oh, God, it's cake. I don't know what happened. It's cake. Come here, look, look. Uh. When I say that, to say this. The guys that invented Betty Crocker cake mixes went to a lot of work to invent Betty Crocker cake mixes. But they had a profit motive. They did not do it from experience or the goodness of their hearts. The guys who caused this book and our steps and traditions to exist were all truistic. There was some profit motive. Bill talks about it in his writings. Bill would have made a billion dollars off of this thing if it hadn't been for Dr. Bob from the studies I have done. But he caused a book to happen. A set of instructions that if you're new or you're not so new and you refuse to do it, I can only share with you this. That I followed the the instructions and I got cake. Then I tried it without the instructions and I nearly got drunk and I hurt a lot of people. Then I went back to the recipe and today I stand in front of you a whole man with a loving wife and a decent place in society and a successful man. I am not of good health. I may die at any second just to entertain you. Five years ago, I was given two years to live because I have a bad heart. I was then told if my heart makes it, my lungs will give up and within four years because I have emphysema, asthma, and something called COPD. I now have an enlarged heart and reduced capacity. The first of December, I was talking to my wife in the kitchen, and then I was laying on the floor looking up at my wife, and her eyes were big, and I said, what happened? She said, you fell down. We went to the hospital and found out I got another heart problem, and they had to put in a face maker and defibrillator into my chest. You know, and it sets in there, waiting for that to happen again. First, second of January, it happened again. This damn thing shocked my ass bad, I'll tell you. It delivers 800 volts of uh, right into your heart muscle and kicks your butt clear across the kitchen, I guarantee you. I went back to the hospital again another week. They adjusted it, they changed it, they gave me some medication to slow down my heart, and they sent me home, but while I was in there, I got a virus. I was home, I was so sick, I started reacting to the medicine. They take me back to the hospital the next Sunday. I've been in the hospital three weeks since the first of December. Oh. Four years ago, I stuck my hand on the table so I cut off three fingers. Uh, at my home group, they call me Lucky. 
Uh, one day when they were operating on my hand, trying to do some reconstructive surgery, during the process, the operation, I died on the operating table. And they had to put them things on me three times to get me back to life. I got to my home group, the following Tuesday, there was a little sign on my seat that said, Lazarus. <laughs> my group calls me the man who lost his fingers. He'll never grow new ones. Uh, I am a happy man, and I'm sure you that to tell you this. If your life isn't going just right right now, you can get all worked up about it, but it ain't going to change it. I have been near death's door seven, eight times. I have been dead twice and been brought back. And I have never been happier than I am today, right here in Ocean City, Maryland, standing in front of you. At the footprints in the sand. Footprints in the winter sand. Who came up with this title? <laughs> the fisherman knew it was an alcoholic deal. Only a drunk would go barefoot in Maryland in January. Yeah. Some drunk who woke up without any shoes walking on the beach. I stand here in front of you. 60 years old and my parts are stopping and falling apart and I've never been a more complete and happy man than I am today because of the recipe because of Alcoholics Anonymous because of you I have been overpaid for 29 years I should have been in jail a long time ago kept there I should have been locked up I should have been put in jail for some of the things I did in sobriety but I was allowed to walk free and make amends for that stuff if you're not so new and you're not having any fun, all we who are having fun can invite you to do is to retake the steps and get busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is not a spectator sport. It says in our book, participation is the key to harmony. And if my life is not harmonious, it's because I'm not participating. I am not getting out of myself and helping you. I've been sober almost 30 years. I still have commitment in one, at least one meeting that I go to, and I go to three, four meetings a week, regular scheduled meetings and I have at least one major commitment in every meeting I'm sorry in one meeting I don't want to take the newcomers jobs and washing tables and doing all that crap but I have a commitment I'm right now I'm treasurer of one of the groups that I belong to and when that's up I'll wipe tables I'll do something because I got to 30 years sober like Keith said last night I have to maintain my enthusiasm my ownership of Alcoholics Anonymous so if you're new or you're not so new and you're not having fun, pick up a goddamn rag and start wiping off tables. Start folding chairs. Start making the coffee. Start sweeping the floor. Start greeting the newcomers. Do something before you die. I don't care if you stand up and scream, you ha ha, you know. But don't let this thing walk past you without grabbing a hold of it. If you're 10 years sober, 5 years sober, 8 years sober, 20 years sober, you're tomorrow's old timers. And the newcomers are not going to stop coming. We need you. We need the traditions. We need the steps. Make sure you stay here and you keep them here. And have fun. And for Christ's sakes, please invite me back someday to speak at the summer thing, okay? <laughs> I love you. Thank you very much. <laughs>